Our partner for this episode is Carl Treen and Food Forest Card Game. With a deck of Food Forest cards, you put yourself in the center of a web of relationships, connecting plants, insects, animals, and people. With these cards, you will play fun, challenging games based on these relationships, matching the inputs on one card with the outputs of another to create beneficial connections. For example, you can take one card that produces nitrogen, such as clover, and connect it to a nitrogen consumer, like blackberries. One card that needs a trellis, for example grapes, with another card that acts as one, like linden. By matching these relationships, players discover how to use the complex web of nature to their advantage, both in the game and in the garden. Food forest cards are also responsibly sourced, and every deck sold goes toward planting multiple trees. We not only offset our impact, but honestly improve the environment. Find out more and order your deck of cards today at foodforestcardgame.com. Though David and I work with partners like Carl and Food Forest Card Game, who we believe in and who believe in the podcast, this program remains listener-supported. We couldn't keep doing this if it wasn't for you. Please consider including the show in your end-of-year giving. Online at paypal.me slash permaculturepodcast, on the right-hand side of the website at thepermaculturepodcast.com, or by mail, The Permaculture Podcast, P.O. Box 16, Dauphin, Pennsylvania, 17018. This is The Permaculture Podcast. I'm Scott Mann. In this episode recorded by co-host David Bilbrey, David Holmgren returns for the first of a two-part conversation about his latest book, Retro Suburbia. This work and the discussion today looks at how people are and can adapt in place as individuals and communities by retrofitting where many of us live, in the spaces around cities, the suburbs. Throughout, David Holmgren shares how we found ourselves in the suburbs and the importance of getting off the debt, commute, and consume treadmill. Together, David and David also discuss self-reliance, the revitalization of suburbia, and understanding and applying the context of where we live to the creation of our solutions. As co-host David Bilbrey shares his own introduction to this time with David Holmgren, let's get started and I'll join you again after. Hi, this is David Bilbrey with EcoThinkIt.com and the Permaculture Podcast. And I'm here today with David Holmgren, which, as many of you know, is the co-originator of Permaculture along with Bill Mollison. And he's developed three properties, consulted and supervised in urban and rural projects, and presented lectures, workshops, and courses at a wide variety of events in venues in Australia and around the world. His writings over those three decades spanned a diversity of subjects and issues, but always illuminating another aspect of permaculture thinking. David, uh, I'm excited to explore with you the recent research and practice into retrofitting the place where most of us live, suburbia. Welcome. Good to be on the Permaculture Podcast. So um, I was reading through some things on the, the uh, Retro Suburbia, Suburbia website, and Rob Hopkins did, of the Transition Town Movement did a review, and I love what he said. So he said, the what if at the heart of Retro Suburbia is what if our suburbs were reimagined and repurposed to be sustainable, productive, and vibrant? So David, uh, what if this happened? What would that mean for us as individuals, as communities, and as planetary citizens? I suppose we can look at that from two different perspectives. One is from the personal, immediate, real, practical situation for people living in suburbia, which is most of the population in countries like Australia and the United States. 
some form of detached housing but connected to town services and uh, with some control of, of some growing space or open space uh, around the house. That template has been widely criticised as unsustainable and a product of motor car, fossil fuel powered, uh, cheap motor car transportation and all of the other sort of critiques that there's been throughout my lifetime through the planning profession and whatever. But I always saw from the other side looking at it in that large scale top down sense that suburbia was the easiest residential pattern to retrofit for an energy descent future that includes climate change, peak oil and all the other manifold threats that are uh, now closing in on affluent industrial societies. So that ability to retrofit what we've already got becomes a key issue if we believe that society has not really planned to deal with the fundamental crises it's facing and that it will have to do so in more relatively ad hoc but certainly incremental uh, ways rather than some grand plan to rebuild or radically restructure the the physical environment and infrastructure and economy so that it's actually really too late for those grand plans and in any case those grand plans dealing with the complexity of society and going into crisis mean almost certainly the grand plans will end up sort of creating perhaps more mess along the way than they actually solve. So that idea of retrofitting is a more modest sort of incremental learning cycle, both for society as a whole in dealing with the limits to growth crisis, but also for individuals, you know, that they can start with what they've got and say, okay, let's seriously audit where we are, what our situation is, and if we're going to commit to staying here, what are the assets, what are the threats, what are the opportunities that exist there, and start making those changes rather than, again, we're going to go off over the horizon and create a permaculture eco-village paradise that might take sort of 20 years in the planning (laughs) or something. Not that I'm critical of, you know, projects to sort of create new ways of living, but I think most people will adapt in a sort of in-situ adaption and that that's already happening. People are sort of choosing that with their feet as a sort of a, a practical way to respond to both the sense of people's personal circumstances but also, you know, the larger looming environmental and other crises. So I'm going to reiterate the question a little bit just to have you go a little bit deeper. So as as individuals, how is that going to change our lives? And I'll couch that with uh, one of the interesting things about about permaculture is, and the whole kind of ideas that you've been dealing with for the last, you know, 30, 40 years is that it is 
a wise and, and excellent way to prepare for a, you know, sort of post-petroleum world. But even if there weren't a decline, it's just a more meaningful and connected and satisfying way to live the way that uh, mm. we created the, you know, so with that being said, can you talk a little bit more about what it means to have suburbia retrofitted as an individual or as families? Yeah. I mean, permaculture has always been informed by a, a fairly dark view of the state of the world, but it's focused on how we can create the world we want by modeling it in everyday life by changing what we do rather than the sort of pushback against sort of bad things that are happening in the world. And that was a, a vision or a, a mode of operation that both Mollison and I had come to when we met, even though we were a generation difference in age. So the degree to which permaculture was actually, if you like, a social change strategy rather than uh, just a design system or let alone a, a set of techniques for ecological gardening and farming. It was about that we need to create the world we do want. So live a better life now, basically, whatever those circumstances are. And certainly getting off the debt commuting consumption treadmill is one of the strategies that a lot of people are seeing makes a lot of sense for them, even if it's quite difficult to get off that treadmill. So some of the things about suburbia that make it a good place to start, apart from the fact that that's where a lot of people find themselves, is that firstly, there's some degree of autonomy that we often associate with rural living, that it's possible to modify the garden and even to some extent modify the house without requiring the approval or agreement or support from a huge number of stakeholders. When we're looking at higher density urban areas, especially residential apartment blocks, there are a lot of stakeholders and a lot of gatekeepers in being able to make changes. So while society is not ready to sensibly make those changes, that bit more autonomy that exists in the suburbs allows people to uh, start uh, doing that. Not as much as exists in rural areas, but on the other hand, suburbia has that critical mass of population potentially who live there, even though a lot of suburbs function like dormitory suburbs. So that critical mass of economic and social interaction that we associate with urban areas. So in that sense, I see it as a, a sweet point for this incremental retrofit. In terms of people's practical situation, a lot of people live in houses where there's more floor area per person than there's ever been available in history to any mass population. And that most of that building stock is essentially unused. It may be storing stuff, but when you look at the number of people sharing a house who constitute a household, we've got very, very small households. And so the opportunity to have more people sharing is the critical missing link into 
being able to easily do more of the things to become more self-reliant and less dependent on the monetary economy. So that process of sharing would be more difficult if we were already crowded in houses. When we look at the number of hours of occupancy in the day that people spend at home, because of commuting, not just for work, but for consumption and education and all of these other things, we find that housing is this incredibly underused asset. So just being able to occupy it more and kickstart the household economy of self-reliance, essentially outside the monetary economy, but also the opportunities for innovations in home-based work that the internet and other aspects of miniaturization of technology mean that there's more opportunities to earn some sort of a living or partial living from being at home than was available to previous generations of suburban dwellers. So I'm, I'm sort of portraying those things in terms of macro structural stuff still, because of course, as soon as you start saying, oh, this is what an individual or a household or whatever can do, that of course depends on their exact context. And that context is always different. So there's many, many different strategies for that, how that might play out. And for example, with a, a family with uh, a couple both working, a lot of people, when they do a, a hard analysis, will find it would make more sense just financially for one person to stop work and restart the household economy or both go part-time or some combination of where the, the cycle of commuting is reduced. And so those efficiencies that come with like working from home and being able to run the non-monetary economy, of course, is incredibly challenging for a lot of people because it reminds a lot of people of, oh, yes, the multitasking mother doing some job at the desk and trying to look after kids and, and go and feed the chooks and whatever. But for a lot of people, the experience of greater degree of control over one's daily life more than balances the challenges of, of how you do all these multitask to do all these things at once. So what people making those changes mean that there will be more people actually living in suburbia without necessarily changing the building stock. In other words, the population density will go up. So there's more people around to do things. That means actually safer communities because of casual surveillance on the street is actually the sort of proven most important thing in making uh, neighbourhoods safer. More people spending more time at home, the people that are there, immediately brings life back to the streets. So that means it's more interesting for kids because what is interesting for kids beyond once they get beyond the backyard and the, and the house is what's going on in the neighbourhood. So that re-inhabiting these residential landscapes then opens up so many more possibilities apart from the possibilities 
that exist in the uh, private domain, whether that is uh, uh, an owned one or one with some shared ownership with a bank or whether it's in fact rented from some person on, on, you know, in some ways. We see lots of opportunities to uh, rebuild that autonomous household at the same time that those households then contribute to a, a revitalised uh, community economy and that most of that economy will be non-monetary. And, of course, we know that with economic contraction, this is how people cope anyway. It's just can we do it in a way that has better design, better outcomes, rather than people uh, being forced into that situation and, you know, not making a very good job of it. Can you talk a little bit more about, first of all, a definition of the non-monetary economy and then kind of what, uh, what it means to move into that? Well, we can see that when people go out to work and buy their lunch rather than making their lunch at home, there hasn't actually been any increase in economic activity. It's just been monetarised through money exchange, mostly for, for service, assuming in both cases the, the food came through the monetary economy, but just the making of lunch. So what's happened over my lifetime is a huge amount of the basic needs of food preparation, childcare, basic health maintenance, and of course even recreation and hobbies has shifted out of people just doing things for themselves and exchanging in ways that don't involve money to monetizing those activities. So that shift over my lifetime, my guess is, don't have any data on this, but my guess is half of the growth in GDP over my lifetime has actually been this type of shifting activity out of those non-monetary economies that we just took for granted. We didn't think of them as being part of the economy. And of course, those who dominated that field uh, were women. A lot of people of my generation had a model from their fathers of commuting away to work in the monetary economy, but we still had mothers who gave us a, a model of what home-based productive work involved, even if the social status of that work was going down and down and the organisational complexity of it was reducing and it was being reduced to sort of boring housework. So we can see that probably women moving into the workforce was the biggest part of that shift of activity. And obviously there's a lot of things that um, my mother's generation of feminist activists saw as, you know, a great step forward in terms of access to productive work in the monetary economy. But I think what happened is that households basically lost a huge amount of their independence and their ability to determine how they do things. And society ended up using a massive increase in fossil fuels and uh, non-renewable resources and massively accelerated greenhouse gas emissions because those late monetarised systems 
are the most inefficient to do for society in the monetary economy. You know, the most efficient ones were the early ones that were industrialised, like textile manufacturing, <laughs> you know, that we buy clothes made in a factory rather than make our own. Even though there's been cycles of people revitalising, you know, home manufacture of, of clothing, we can see that there's a lot of other things that are way more efficient to do, uh, like the growing of perishable food, the raising of small livestock, the childcare, education, whatever you call it, passing on culture to the next generations. All those things just happen seamlessly in the household economy as a byproduct of productive activities. So rebooting those economies consciously is a process that we're not very familiar with. We're mostly familiar with this 250-year-long industrial process of moving things out of community, collective, household-level self-reliance and to monetize those. So as I was saying previously, we know that in downturns, in history of the monetary economy, people revitalise those, those non-monetary ways. The, the other aspect of that, of course, is that that household ways of doing things is also the nursery where new, genuine, sustainable monetary economies germinate or get going. You know, a kid starting a backyard nursery as an activity on the side from the veggie garden who finds they can sell seedlings and there's a passion for it. There's a scale up there into a new monetary economy. So it's not like it's just saying everything needs to operate at that level, but we have to rebuild that for our own self-reliance and for community connection but also because it's actually just more energy and resource efficient for society to do that. Now, of course, a lot of economists would just, you know, push back on that and say people are hopelessly inefficient at what they do at home, and it's including food production and uh, even cooking, and it's more efficient to have everything in the monetary economy. I think those ideas show how incompetent uh, some of the people spruiking those ideas are and that great reskilling that Rob Hopkins talks about has huge potential to increase the efficiency of the, the household and community non-monetary economies whereas a lot of the monetary economy has already been through the ringer of you know 30 or 40 years of neoliberal policies sort of trying to squeeze more efficiency out of systems, whereas our households in a lot of ways have got slack and fat and lazy. So that means there's great opportunities to just get better at doing things, big productivity gains effectively. But our motivation may be not that. It may be I just want to, you know, engage with nature, live a healthier lifestyle, uh, you know, do green gym in the garden rather than going to the the gym and pay money to, you know, run on a treadmill or some other ridiculous activity. 
So uh, as you're talking, I'm thinking about, you know, the non-monetary economy is much more than just doing for yourself things mm -hmm. that you pay for, right? Because the dynamics of learning how to grow your own food, um, make things, um, you know, trade skills and tools and resources with your neighbor, et cetera, are tapping into a lot of those social dynamics that make us feel more connected, which as a result, make us more healthy, neurologically and physically. And mm -hmm. so the, the, the measures of an economy need to radically change. Like what, what are the criteria for the things that we measure as an economy? GDP is, is a ridiculous <laughs> measure for, for how a culture is thriving. It has very little to do with the actual thriving of, of the health and vitality of human beings. And so uh, one of the things I really appreciate, appreciate about you is the ideas that you have developed over the years Sarah's much about methodologies they do about conceptual frameworks uh, of systems thinking specifically. Can you talk mm. a little bit more about paradigms as we move into this new time in history? First of all, how do we make a paradigm shift? But more importantly, how do you, once you have that shift, how do you learn to embody that, that shift so that you can live into it fully in a way that's going to really change your life and your community and hopefully the world? Yeah, well, this interplay between sort of theory and praxis is uh, obviously different pathways for, for different people. And certainly in the early days of permaculture, I was really galvanised in meeting Bill Mollison, not just because of the sort of person he was and his ideas, but the whole social circle that he was part of where people did things for themselves. And although I came from a family of political radicals, if something went wrong with the plumbing, my parents rang up a plumber. Whereas the circle around Mollison, they did everything for themselves or they knew someone who, you know, they could get to do it. And that was this enormously empowering world. So the, the degree to which the thinking of these shifts that are necessary and the just being the guinea pig to see if these ideas can actually be a lived practice, I think the constant interchange. And for different people, that will come in different ways. Some people will be have some understanding that society is fun, facing fundamental limits rather than just some technical problem with the nature of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, for example, or any other sort of symptom of the, the larger crisis. And that this is big scale. Yes, there's, there's local, political, economic and environmental crises, but there's a sort of a larger one looming that's on the scale of our civilization. You know, many people over the last 30 or 40 years have had some evidence and inkling of that. But those ideas only go so far before you need to do something about that. And of course, there have been people who've tried to point out to society some of these things, but most have found that have continued with these ideas over the last 30 or 40 years against the tide and direction of society, have found some 
energy, if not complete satisfaction in doing it themselves, trying it out. And of course, there's a limit to how far you can go as an individual. A lot more can be done if you are in a supportive household. Now, that may be a family or it may be some other arrangements, but there's that the, at the household level, there's an alignment towards these sort of values. And so that, that feedback between actually the ideas, the, the theory and uh, the doing has been certainly very important for me. And retro suburbia is really distilling a lot of the patterns that were found over the last 40 years that a lot of people have adopted and found more effective. And so some of those uh, have been big strategic learnings that for a lot of people uh, a move to not just the countryside but remote wild areas has not been the most successful pattern in making these changes. Even those, those back to the land aspects of permaculture have strongly informed and shaped what people and now doing, often now bringing some of that, if you like, rural self-reliance, that re-ruralising suburbia. So there's all these different threads of, of practice that you could see as a sort of like a muddling along. How does society learn how to evolve into new spaces? It's very hard for that to be part of a plan, but certainly... I believe that the more theoretical frameworks of understanding the energetic and ecological basis of society, a lot of those design rules that come from nature that we see distilled in permaculture design principles and the ethical frameworks that have guided traditional cultures of place and Indigenous people over millennia can all be useful, those abstractions, in trying to sort of find what actually works or makes sense, both in a practical immediate sense, so we obtain a yield from what we do, but also start to explore the patterns that might work over the long term. And, you know, I, I think those processes, you know, do go back and forth. My work in Principles and Pathways Beyond Sustainability that was published in 2002, I think re-energised a lot of people within the permaculture movement that this thinking tools that come from working with nature that we associate with garden farming and working in natural landscapes can be applied in the social and the economic domain. But the strategies and techniques will always vary completely with the, the context. And, of course, one of those big contexts is suburbia. And because there is so much of it in so many people's situations and, you know, type of house construction with particular orientations on particular soil types is sort of replicated across landscape, that means that... People who do the experimentation in developing refined solutions, there's a possibility of others copying those 
and not making that error which we so often see of copying things inappropriately. So that relates to part of the problem of how society makes this transition. So that's a very practical issue, but to bring it back to a, a theoretical one, in a world powered by fossil fuel, there tends to be one big solution that trumps other all, all other solutions to any particular design problem or situation. So we can see that the design of airports, international airports, despite their superficial outside differences in architectural appearance, basically all function in the same way. The software around the world, you know, it's a universal. And that's led modern people in the technosphere to assume that when you're working with nature, it'll be similar. And it's not. You know, that every situation is different. And that's why agriculture was actually the last big economic activity of humans, the most important of all, to be industrialised. You know, textiles was the first because it suited the mechanistic framework of fossil fuel scale. Whereas working with nature, it actually doesn't really suit that. You know, the soil changes, the, the landscape, the microclimate, the other species. So as we move into an energy descent future, inevitably things become more localised, relocalised, and the design solutions become differentiated from place and context. But if we have a culture that for hundreds of years has taught us there's one big solution to every problem, we go looking for what that solution is in its concrete form to just copy. So that means that this sort of fast-track change that we're used to in industrialisation, that if we throw enough money and resources at something like, oh, yes, the renewable energy transition, we can just make it all happen faster. Well, you know, you can't fast-track the growing seasons in terms of getting skill as a producer, whether that's as a, a garden farmer at home or skilling up to be a commercial producer. There are a whole lot of non-negotiable things that are not in the human uh, realm to uh, control. So accepting that we have this, all of these Trojan horses in our thinking that we inherit from the past that may have worked, but they won't work in a future that's dependent on renewable energy with less energy density than fossil fuel and in ongoing, radically changing environment where the, the climate is continuing to change. Just considering those two factors alone mean that we have to find what the particular opportunities are. So that means there's an incredibly important role for innovator, experimenter, tinkers who do things at a small scale, partly so the mistakes are small scale too, and that there's a learning cycle. And that means other people can adopt those without having to go through all the gatekeepers of society, the banks and the uh, government regulation, and just say, oh, I can try that. And so that degree to which we want to just copy can actually work at that small scale in suburbia. So we've, we've got a pathway of how 
society learns its way into this new environment at speed driven by the urgency of change and the unfolding crisis without there being a grand master plan, which we know through permaculture design and through a whole lot of other uh, related design professions that master planning hasn't sort of really worked in any context. So we need to have some sense of the directions we're going and sort of uh, a laser focus on what is the, the next thing that needs to be done in this particular context that's getting us in the general direction and that will help shape what's the next thing to do. And that is incredibly empowering for a lot of people because a lot of people can say, oh, that's how I make decisions in my life anyway. That's how you know I've got as far as I've got rather than some great detailed plan that is unfolding according to timelines and agendas. Very few people find their lives follow those sort of more idealised formal planning processes. You know, it's so interesting um, kind of thinking about I think a lot about how you, you know, transform social and economic systems and how we evolve our democratic systems into something that's actually serving all of humanity because, you know, corruption and all the different factors of our culture, Darwinian capitalism, et cetera, have, have caused, you know, uh, there, there's good things about them and then there's, there's sort of this degradation that's happened at the same time. And so as you talk about scale and sort of rescaling it's kind of the rescaling of the human experiment. Like we need to figure out which activities and endeavors need to function, or I guess which, which activities and endeavors will function optimally at which scales. So as we find the appropriate scale for food production, textiles, communication, government, um, mm. you know, a community, et cetera, that's how we learn to optimize and really live fully as, as human beings, at least partly, in part is just like, how, as you discover that scale, you discover the optimal functionality because it's happening organically as, you know, kind of like the core idea of permaculture of a food forest and working with the energies that nature always already wants to exude. And you just tailor that for food, fiber, and fodder. So the scale piece really is is you know when you find that right scale then you're working with the natural energy of i don't know you know the ecosystem uh, be it social economic um ecological whatever it is mm, so, yeah and a lot, a lot of people obviously when they start gardening they choose to grow things like salad greens before staple crops and uh staple garden farming crops like potatoes and and corn and squash before they consider growing uh, grains for, for bread uh, because there's that recognition that, that some things are harder to do at a small scale. You know, the Chinese experimented in the Great Leap Forward in the late 1950s with backyard steel making. It didn't sort of work out very well. Uh, so it's <laughs> clear there are sort of differences in optimal scales, but we also know that What's happened through fossil fuel-powered uh, consumer capitalism is that the scale of everything is moved up to the globalised maximum scale because that actually does tend to op optimise the 
the use of fossil fuel technology and globalised corporate finance, uh, which takes it all away from human scale. And, of course, there's been a whole lot of writing over the, the decades and even more than a century now about this loss of human scale and that we don't actually, as you know, simple beings, actually feel at home in those larger scales. So, of course, that idea of relocalising and human scale is, is important for those reasons. But also that there's not much evidence that things from a very large scale move down back to some optimal scale. They usually move up into increasingly rigid, powerful structures that become dominant in a field and then break. <laughs> uh, so the tendency in capitalism towards monopoly has required government to sort of break up those things periodically and we're entering another phase where, you know, there's increasing acceptance of the ideas of, you know, the giants of the internet need to be broken up like uh, Standard Oil was broken up, you know, more than 100 years ago. But those processes are sort of like remedial trying to sort of patch up the system. If we look at the food system as an example, when people start growing food for themselves, they are doing what economists <laughs> have a horrible term for that, disintermediation, cutting out the middlemen, basically. You're collapsing the whole food supply chain, which is still the largest part of the whole economy when you put it all together from farmer to the shop. And if you include driving to the shop, <laughs> that back into one process where the producer and the consumer is the same person. So that radical restarting of the food supply system from the bottom up, of course, is possible because the, the other system is still there ticking over. But what that then leads to is what I was alluding to before, you know, the kid who, who finds that they're actually passionate about growing and they take that garden farming household um, food growing experience and turn it into a new livelihood. Now, what happens in the presence of continuing debt-financed consumer capitalism is that that system will always say, oh, you've got a successful business model, have you? Oh, well, we can double your production and quadruple it and before long you'll be, you know, the, the corporate king of, you know, urban salad production or, or something. Yeah. So, so the, the systems that exist are always either pushing people back and, and, and destroying what they're doing or accelerating them up into the monetary economy. But those processes are increasingly failing failing to work and just producing more debt cycles, more environmental degradation and less socially beneficial outcomes. So that growth up to appropriate scale and stopping at that appropriate scale will be something that we'll see happen when those larger forces are actually no longer as powerful. And I think that learning cycle that starts with the small scale and scales up rather than any attempt to sort of break things up, break up the supermarket monopolies. I think all of those are, are really band-aids. 
we're building a parallel food system in the shadows of the existing one, and that, of course, includes household non-monetary production, uh, genuine commercial urban agriculture, uh, wild harvesting, and small-scale bioregional food production that's connected to consumers through farmers' markets, uh, co-ops, and you know, community-supported agriculture. So one of the things in that process that we've learned is that people who are actually grow some of their own food turn out to be the best customers for farmers who do it for a living, which is a little bit counterintuitive, but it comes from people recognising that growing food is actually quite complicated and they have a respect for people who do it for a living, whereas people who don't do that for a living are part of the problem in their demands as consumers for perfectly, cosmetically, you know, perfect produce, out-of-season produce, you know, infinite variety, whatever the season is, et cetera, et cetera. So this importance of the smallest scale where you start and learn the process is very, very important and a much easier pathway than saying, how do we design as some sort of like optimal, oh, yes, the optimum way to produce this particular thing in society is at that scale and how do we put the policies in place to make that happen? That's not going to happen. You know, it might be nice if we had a policy framework that would assist that, but I think we largely have policy frameworks that will try and preserve and armour existing dysfunctional uh, systems. The other aspect of this scale is that small-scale things can achieve importance not by scaling up but also by replication. So if garden farming in the household economy is an important way to produce food and in feeding retro suburbia from the backyard to the bioregion in that essay I suggest in the Australian context, we could have about 25% of the food being produced in that way without that being you know, very challenging or, or difficult. But the way we get there is when one garden farmer is successful, someone else copies that rather than that garden farmer suddenly leasing everyone's backyards and turning into the, yes, the McDonald's of the, um, uh, the backyard farming industry. <laughs> uh, so replication is an equally important growth path than scaling up. And often that gets missed when people talk about what is the significance of this tiny activity that someone is doing? How can that change society? Well, it can easily change society if enough people copy it and do it at that small scale, because collectively that represents a big system. And that was David Holmgren. You can find him, his work, and his books at holmgren.com.au. You'll find a link to that in the show notes and where you can buy Retro Suburbia online to have shipped wherever you live in the world. To go along with this episode, I also have a giveaway thanks to David and the folks at Holmgren Design, John Wages and Permaculture Design Magazine, and Richard Telford of permacultureprinciples.com. I have a copy of Retro Suburbia and copies of the 2020 Permaculture Calendar to give away. I'll be giving the book and a calendar to one listener and two more copies 
of the calendar to two others. You'll find this giveaway at patreon.com slash permaculturepodcast starting on October 10th, 2019 and running until October 30th, 2019. If you'd like to make sure you get a copy of the calendar for yourself or to give to friends and family, you'll find those at permacultureprinciples.com. This year, the calendar features awesome images to illustrate the principles of permaculture, thicker print stock, and a better print quality. You get all of that for just $11.95 US, with 100% of the sales profits going to the Perma Fund, a charitable organization supporting permaculture projects around the world. Any conversation with David Holmgren leaves me with enough to ponder for weeks and months to come after I first listen, and new thoughts are rising each time I revisit the interview. Until the second half of this conversation comes out in a few weeks, I'd like you to consider the ideas of replication and context for the design and refit of the suburbs. For those of you living in those spaces, how does where you live change and shape what you can accomplish? This includes things like what you would grow in your garden, the rules and regulations that determine where you can live and who you can live with, whether calling on help for repairs can come from your own sweat equity, the capital economy, or an informal network of support, and what sustainable solutions are permitted or illegal. Think about those for now, and we'll visit these again in the closing notes of the next episode. If you're facing particular issues with your design or other projects, feel free to leave a comment in the show notes for this episode so the community and I can give you a hand. Or you can get in touch with me directly for a more direct one-on-one conversation by emailing show at permaculturepodcast.com, calling 717-827-6266, or writing The Permaculture Podcast, P.O. Box 16, Dauphin, Pennsylvania, 17018. From here, the next interview is the second half of the conversation with David Holmgren. Until then, spend each day retrofitting suburbia while taking care of Earth, yourself, and each other.